Welcome to Super Serious Film Fest, our theme series of movie reviews. This season covers the best and the worst of Nick Cage. The summer and winter of his career. In what we're calling Season of the Cage. So we watched Adaptation. What did you think of this this movie? Uh, this, to my mind, is Nick Cage's best film. I, I agree with you. Like this is just really great work, and the brilliant thing is there's really no difference between Donald and Charlie, other than how they perceive themselves and their successes. Mm-hmm. One is just ate up by what I've come to know as the fraud complex. The fact that he is is actually the worst human being alive, and he's gotten some kind of a claim. Uh, or he has some kind of gift that is unearned and uh, the praise is all unwarranted. And, and if everyone just can can see him accurately, if he doesn't keep up this this charade, this, if he doesn't hide from the world, he's going to be he's going to be exposed. And I mean, that's just where the brilliance of the movie begins. <laughs> right. Uh, it's one of the most accurate representations of what the creative process feels to me. The, the, this movie feels like a movie split into two halves. I was going to uh, say in the three. same way that the this character of Charlie Kaufman is. Yeah. Because I do think there's a lot of Donald and Charlie probably in the real human being Charlie Kaufman. You are aware that Donald is a as a construct. He's it's yeah, he's not uh, real. Okay. 100%. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that during the live watch yeah, during no, the first I mean, watch of this. I, I didn't know anything cuz I came into this I'd never seen this movie before. Yeah. But yeah, I I didn't know anything except for it was about writing a screenplay. Mm-hmm. That's literally the only thing I knew about it. Um, I, I think that this movie is just, just remarkably tight and connected and interesting to all of its themes simultaneously. And it's also a movie that really rewards a second watch because this, uh, I came home, had dinner with my wife and I'm like, we got, I I need to watch this again for work. Have you ever seen it? No. Do you want to watch it? And I watched it within a couple hours of the first time I watched it. And I had the, my initial then you can probably see this in the live watch, but my my initial thought was uh, the last 15, 20 minutes I thought were not great because I was trying to think it, it seemed like it was a little too clever. The answer is just to adapt something to Hollywood Sanders is just to start cutting corners and breaking and, and following the rules and being a little bit more formulaic. But the second time I watched it, it's, I mean that process begins from the very like almost from the beginning of the movie that like mm-hmm. the that he is already breaking the movie you're watching is already breaking a lot of the his own ethical rules about writing it's the tale of three films in one like it's ostensibly about this orchid thief book which is a real mm-hmm. book written by about this man named LaRoche who is this uh wild-eyed orchid hunter uh and he's the sordid tales of how he he gets orchids in the wild and cultivates them and uses native americans to aid and abet them uh and the this this orlean character played by by meryl streep who is the the author of of the the original new yorker piece on him and then she wrote a whole book on it and it's about that and it's an interesting enough story like you could totally see uh a version of that movie being interesting right like it's it's kind of like uh maybe not interesting it might it turn out to be like a matthew mcconaughey and gold you know where it's like well it should be interesting but it's kind of not then it's also the story about charlie kaufman adapting that work mm-hmm. but it's also the story of the eventual hollywood movie that that eventually gets made which has everything that he hates about hollywood movies it's got car chase it's got 
sex. It's got violence and guns and drugs. You know, it's like he, he's there's this pitch meeting with Tilda Swinton. It's a prophecy. All the stuff he doesn't want it to be about eventually is what the movie ostensibly is about. But it's still always about uh, the, the self-loathing and the creative writing process and how it kind of uh, can destroy your life if you let it. But to your point, I do think that Charlie and and Donald are supposed to, are properly understood as to be like Charlie Kaufman when he is at his most neurotic and self-destructive and self-loathing, and that's Charlie. And then when he's at his best and you know his 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 best self, he's Donald. Except for Donald's a sellout. I mean, Donald or is Donald a sellout? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, there's a lot of tension between Charlie and this movie, and and it comes through, you know, in in that idea of the pressure of getting this thing done, sort of drives him to do the things that he refused at the beginning to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think <laughs> this Robert McKee thing is interesting because Charlie Kaufman did really go to a Robert McKee workshop. Uh, but he did not go for the reasons that this movie shows him going out of frustration over his writer's block. He essentially went there for research, which is interesting to me because that would almost belie the idea that he had some kind of writer's block and needed to to unclog it using conventional storytelling methods. Hmm. You know, and, and the fact that this movie does eventually fall into uh, conventional storytelling methods to me says that it's almost maybe a satire. Mm hmm. But I'm not entirely sure that it is. It's funny that you say that because it's almost like then that that it, it changes how I feel about the film, if true, because it implies that Charlie Kaufman is he almost has contempt for your your normal writer that's consumed with paranoia and neuroses <laughs> and all this uh, self loathing because uh, it's 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 like he he just did this as research. He didn't need the help. It's like he knew exactly what he wanted to do the adaptation the whole time. And, you know, it's he's kind of like, oh, well, if you if 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 you can't do something like this, then I guess it must suck to be you because I'm pretending to be it and cashing it in and laughing with the bank. Isn't that well, it kind of it kind of, I think, speaks to your point about there being some Donald and some Charlie in the real Charlie Charlie Kaufman, Uh, because, you know, a a man who was all Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. uh, Character wise, Uh wouldn't be able to write anything. Yeah. I think that there's no way a guy could write this like inner critic dialogue that the movie starts off with and it it kind of dips into when when Charlie's really having struggle. I don't think anyone could write that with such startling accuracy if they didn't feel it. But it is interesting because this movie is so recursive and so uh so uh Ouroboros, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he says it in one scene. He says I've written myself into my own movie. Mm-hmm. I'm insane. I'm the Ouroboros. Insane? I'm Ouroboros. I don't know what that word means. I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh? It's self-indulgent. It's narcissistic. It's solipsistic. It's pathetic. I'm pathetic. I'm fat and pathetic. The most narcissistic. This is the most, yeah. <laughs> How can you not get in get way inside your own head when you have that realization while you're writing a script right and how would that not drive you insane and think that you're doing absolute shit work yeah he's turned he's taken this beautiful book about orchids that uh-huh. orlean wrote uh-huh. and turned it into a film about himself uh-huh i mean he's right that's the most narcissistic sure uh self-interested thing you could do yeah 
sometimes you have these brilliant creative flashes where it's like you get three levels deep, like, you know, and that's where the exciting is. That's where you almost get this like it's it's like a like a manic depressive state. Right. So you're in a manic state of like, oh, my God, what if I make this actually about the process of writing and how you are afraid to fall into all these pitfalls and sell out and make this into a Hollywood picture and sexy it up and make it a story. But then, oh, ha ha. What if I actually do that and it winds up being a great film and it works as both because it or what if I make it worse by making it about myself and the process? Yeah. And and no one's interested in it. And it becomes I become a laughing stock because I've made a film that's about something completely different into a right. story about myself. Right. And then but then the it's hubris. like then it's like, well, if you stop there, it would suck. But they just keep pushing on. And he writes himself into this in the middle of this Hollywood potboiler. And uh, I the the ending is bizarre, and I still don't know that it's fully earned. It did feel a little like what did Charlie learn? Like because there's a tension between the hack workshop guy, if he's even supposed to be a hack, uh, and Charlie's first principles of you know real life isn't like a movie. You know mm-hmm. most of the time it's just you know boring circumstance or boring circumstance and random connections and nobody changes or grows. Like there's you know that's why movies are always about these singular events, right? Because that's the most interesting thing that's happening to this person in their whole life. Um, but you know why don't you just tell a story about just 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 everyday life because it's boring. What at the end what has what has Charlie figured out about himself and the writing process? The one big change is he makes an advance on a woman that instead of creepily viewing them from afar and sexually obsessing over them and using them as masturbation fuel, he is actually trying to make a human connection with one. Yeah. It's probably an inappropriate one. It's something that the woman doesn't want, uh, but I guess it's progress over getting in an elevator with a woman that you're fixated on and being so paralyzed by whatever that you you don't take that next step. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like that character has synthesized some bit of Donald into his neuroses and come out a little more confident or at least a little less bothered by his uh, lack of confidence in himself. Hmm. But it's it's also weird because like it's not his real brother. Uh, he's in at, at this phase of the movie. He's firmly re- left any kind of semblance of real life. So it's like it's like you keep on turning over to move and it's like a telescope. You look at it from one angle and things get bigger and you look at it from the other and things get smaller. So it's like we well, made progress. But when you start thinking about it, it's like maybe he didn't. And maybe that's depressing or maybe it's uplifting. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. So you mentioned that Charlie doesn't in real life doesn't actually have a brother named Donald doesn't as far as i know have any brothers he's also not as fat old or ugly no, or hairless or like it, he has he, a lot of hair in fact yeah, yeah. And, and like this movie it's like charlie coffin's character's hair is it's just it's i don't i don't know how you describe it fryer, a, a disappoint like a <laughs> like a ill-maintained fryer tuck okay yeah uh, That's it, good. I think this is the the movie that ruined Nick Cage's hair too. But really, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just the time it, did that, it, and and I think that there's something interesting in that too. Like that was another realization after I moved. Like, oh, so this is literally Charlie Kaufman at his most like self loathing because he's inventing problems that he himself doesn't. You know, his if he, his hair is thinning, it's certainly not like the way it's depicted in this film. If he's got a, a average body, it's certainly not as whatever Nick Cage. I mean, that's that's the weird thing because Nick Cage is still 
got a little of the con yeah. error j- jack to him. Yeah. But he's just kind of gotten uh, man boobs and a beer gut. Yeah, this is no Christian Bale transformation. No. Certainly not. Although I think that's the same thing about Christian Bale. Like, Christian Bale uh, in that American Hustle, like, he's clearly Batman with a beer, with a beer gut. It's not a man who's authentically let himself go over 15 years. You know how I know? I see that man every day in the mirror. Uh... <laughs> Well, I think it's important to note also the twin is important in this movie because Uh Donald is a reflection of himself as a more well-adjusted person. Mm. And you look at Donald, he's having a lot of success with women, right? I mean, he's dating Maggie Gyllenhaal, which, come on. Yeah, like his peak secretary era, uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Right, and it's important to note that at the beginning of this movie, he's talking about all the things he could fix, right? He Uh He could go to the gym, he could get thin, he could... Uh, I don't know, learn to speak Chinese, all these right. things. The one thing he says he can't change is that he's ugly. Mm-hmm. And yet we see Donald succeeding in every arena of life, being exactly the same as Charlie. Yeah, it's crucial. It's almost in like physical appearance. It's almost like that's the audience's totem, like in the movie Inception. Like, yeah. anytime we got, anytime we feel like Charlie might be onto something about his, his, deplorable status we look at donald and he's having so much fun and he's being yeah. goofy and charming and irreverent and and he's got he's identical other than his his affect like instead of having this rule of you can't flirt with people on set he sees that there is some flirtation going on and whereas uh, charlie would go r- run screaming from the room or mm-hmm. you know he's so gripped up by the fact that a pretty woman's talking to him that he makes word salad come out uh or he would just I mean, this movie is also just about a man who likes watching opportunities after opportunities pass him by. <laughs> For sure. He's fully Jack Sparrowing all these moments. He just he sees them coming from a mile away and he just disassociates from reality until those those moments go 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 past. And I'm actually to the point with this film. I've I've seen it three or four times now mm-hmm. where I'm not sure that Donald the character is real. And I say that because Donald is writing a story mm-hmm. about a serial killer who is both a serial killer and the cop that is chasing him. Oh. And they talk throughout this movie in the same way that they talk about, like, all the yeah. rules that you shouldn't you shouldn't yeah. bring into your movie and then go ahead and do that. Right. In the in the same breath, they're talking about how a serial killer can't possibly give chase on horseback to a cop on a motorcycle mm-hmm. or vice versa, whatever it is. I'm putting in a chase sequence. Uh, so the killer flees on horseback with the girl, the cops after them on a, on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses, like technology versus horse. And there's still all one person, right? I'm not actually sure that Donald's intended to be a real character, and I think the movie is setting up situations where it's impossible for him not to be, but also at the same time he is. Hmm. I mean, I... It's funny because I was about to ask you, well, wait a second. There's a couple scenes where I don't think this tracks through. But exactly, but they're they're lampshading that entire thing the whole time. So they're essentially saying, yes, this doesn't make sense, and this is an impossibility. Uh, but, but you're <laughs> right, because right, like, it is the fact that he's he's giving a screen credit alongside the real, very yeah. real Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. That, that fiction is maintained throughout. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I see. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think this movie'd be very rewarding with multiple rewatches. Um, yeah. But I just know that, like, I was really deeply skeptical of it the first time I saw it. The second time I saw it, I loved it. So, like, hell, maybe the third time I saw it, I think it's essential. 
Roger Ebert mentioned in his review that the ending works on on multiple layers, which is not to say that it only works on two. Mm-hmm. I kind of really feel that, that this movie, again, like the telescope, you can look at it end to end. It's like a telescope kaleidoscope, because then, then you find the knob, you start twisting, and this, oh shit, colors and shapes start changing. Uh, and there, uh, they, there's so many things that he puts in here, like drug use uh, of this like nondescript wild orchid based drug that is in fact not real that could explain mm-hmm. like there's a lot of the third act where I was trying to figure out like well this must be now we've warped into you know this is like a fear and loathing in Las Vegas situation where you know are we in bat country or are these people is, is Meryl Streep just kind of losing her mind um, no I feel like Donald takes over at some point in this movie and I think I can pinpoint the moment where it turns from Charlie's story to Donald's story. Uh, and I'm talking about this in like an abstract. Okay. Character is writing the story because this movie is about the character writing the story. Is that when he comes out the when It's New York. Okay. It's New yeah. York. When he gets I, in the elevator and he sees Meryl Streep, that's still, I think, Charlie writing the story. Yep. When Donald pushes him in a direction and says, we need to go investigate, I'm going to be you. I'm going to go into this room. Oh, my God, she's lying. We need to go find out. And everything just goes bananas, right? That, to me, is when the second twin of this movie kicks in and Donald takes over the story. And there's a metaphor that makes that work where Charlie has left Donald behind and he's completely isolated from him. And then he calls from a hotel and says, kind of, I need your help. Maybe you'd be interested in hanging out with me for a few days in New York. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah? I was going to show my script to some people, and maybe you can read it, too, you know, if you like. And then, I think you're right, Donald starts essentially taking over the wheel. He does. Yeah, I think literally, I think he's literally driving that car. It kind of works on a level where Charlie got stuck writing this movie halfway through, realized there wasn't a story, realized he didn't have an ending, and he used the cheapest methods possible to get to the ending, intending to wow the audience to forget about the fact that he hasn't written an ending or Mm -hmm. couldn't write an ending. Mm -hmm. And yet he uses those cheap thrills in order to make the point about the epiphany that Charlie has at the end. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's this weird, like, you almost can't get to the end of this movie without already having like tried to write the movie at the beginning yeah i I don't know how to describe it It, it, and roger ebert's review of this to say oh it works on multiple levels which is not to say only two is so deliciously vague and Mm -hmm. he can get away with it Mm -hmm. here i'm trying to describe Mm -hmm. my thoughts and feelings on the end of this movie and that's my mistake i suppose yeah but that's that's the charlie kaufman mistake i'm making right but i should just donald it and say oh it's vague and it's delicious and i love it right like i think (laughs) uh, his original he's he has a longer form great movie review but his original review is like five paragraphs yeah like yep it's john malkovich gonna blow your mind feels like what it says to be a writer nick cage the man i'm out uh, you know, go see this because yeah, like, w- how he would need ten times the the column length to fully probably articulate his views of this movie, and that's not what the Sun Times was painting for. And that's one of the things I think is so great about the movie is that it never has to stand on any one leg. It's got three very strong legs. It's got the left, right, and the penis. It's got the it's it's got the the inherently interesting material in the Orchid Thief. 
and the inherently interesting characters about that. It's got the meta commentary on writing the Hollywood adaptation of same. And then you've got also the gonzo aspect of them doing the Hollywood adaptation of same. Anytime you get sick of Charlie navel gazing his depression and anxiety and loneliness, he can always just wake up, literally crack open the orchid thief and read an amazing passage of prose or cut to his imagining of how um, Orleans might have interacted with LaRoche. And man, this it works. That's the like I said, second time I saw this, I was really shocked at how well it worked because number one, it's it's kind of him borrowing the central tragedy of LaRoche, which is kind of depressing to think that uh, the thing that happened to LaRoche to kind of broke him is, you know, when he just made some mistakes and he kills his was it was his mother or aunt? Uh, his mother and his uncle and then his wife left him because wife of left him and I, and the, but the exact same thing happens kind of like with Charlie at the end where they're away and they think everything's fine and then he dies and then he does the imagine me and you song yeah which is something that Charlie had scoffed at putting in a movie and Donald was all about because oh yeah it's like one of those fun little digressions that comes out of nowhere but here it's because I think maybe Charlie's saying that like, yeah, you, my 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 friend Ian Ian Samuel has got this Twitter thing he does. I don't know if it's it's because I'm I've been off Twitter for a long time. I don't know if it's just him or if it's he's copying something else. But he has this thing where he says uh, joke, woke, and bespoke, which is a three level thing. Like a joke is. Uh, you know that that a movie needs a pop culture song in it, uh, to to be to get mainstream success, mainstream success. The woke viewpoint is no, that's actually something that's that 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 a hack would do. And bespoke was actually if you take it and underpin it with some really heart and some like a character moment that's important. The fact that Charlie's trying to desperately connect to his brother to keep him alive, it can actually elevate the whole thing. And hack is saying that any particular formula or any particular method cannot be used at any time in the right the right the hands with the right actors and right settings. And I felt like that's kind of like maybe that's a real thing that Charlie's saying that you can do anything. You can do the laziest thing. You can do the most obvious thing. You can do the twist for its own sake. As long as you do it well and execute at a high level. Uh, it's going to turn out fine. And it also helps to have an amazing cast. You know? Yeah, that, that's the one thing uh, that I thought was funny in, in my research on Robert McKee. Mm -hmm. And God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. Any idiot can write voiceover narration to explain the thoughts of a character. Uh, Which is great because it interrupts Charlie in the middle of this... Fucking depressive it, spiral of uh, voice voiceover. Yeah, and then it feeds right back into the ending of this film where he goes, oh, I'm breaking one of McKee's rules. Don't use voiceover. But it feels right, which is actually more the tone that Robert McKee takes on voiceover, which is that kind of bespoke thing, right? Mm -hmm. If you can do it right, mm -hmm. if you can get the right situation constructed... Uh, voiceover can actually be very effective, but don't use voiceover as a shortcut. It's a yeah, like thing. Anything if you use it as a crutch, yeah, is bad because you're avoiding, uh, you know, like a, like a crutch and a shortcut is avoiding dealing with a essential problem that's going on in your film. And you know, a crutch is used because your leg's bad, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. If possible, I think people would prefer the leg to be fixed 
you wouldn't want to have a crutch the rest of your life. I mean, I know some people are, are, are stuck that way. You get, but like, you get in the front of the roller coaster lines. That yeah, way. It's true. That's true. That's the bespoke. Yeah. <laughs> right. In you a certain should, situation. Yeah. Crutch crutches are good. dumb. You should fix your leg. Uh, woke is some people need crutches all your life. Bespoke. Get you to the front of the roller coaster line. Better than a fast pass. Yeah. <laughs> because you have to pay 65 bucks for it. Apparently, there was a scene written where Robert McKee delivered a speech, uh, a one-page lecture about how, you, or one-page speech about how you can't write one-page speeches, and they cut it, which I thought was deliciously meta. Interesting. Uh, and and yeah, I don't know, catch twenty-two kind of stuff. There's so in the work, in the universe of the workshop, he gives a speech that takes exactly one script page <laughs> right. as. God, that's so good. <laughs> to tell you how you shouldn't write one-page speeches. Uh, I want to order the Blu-ray of this just so I can see the special features. Yeah, let's talk about the cast. Okay. Because that's going to be a lot of fun. This is the Nick Cage film, or this is the, the season of the cage. So uh-huh. Nick Cage is amazing, and we've already talked about why this is a particularly amazing performance by him. His best performance. I, I think I said that at the beginning, but I got to reiterate because it's so fucking good. I can't imagine it wouldn't be in his top five. So, yeah. yeah, sure. Why not? Then you've got Meryl Streep, who I think this is my f- I've seen a lot of Meryl Streep and she usually plays very, you know, out of Africa, Meryl Streep. She's very serious. She's this and that. I kind of prefer the more like the Devil Wears Prada Meryl Streep where she's clearly having a lot of fun. Uh-huh. And she is allowed to have just an enormous amount of fun in this this uh, this movie. Like watching her like run to the bathroom as her elite socialite friends are hectoring about spending making time with this hillbilly down in Florida mm-hmm. uh, is fun. Like watching her get high. Like I still love i've I've watched it like 10 15 times her brushing her teeth and slowly becoming fascinated with her with her teeth what other what other actress could do that i mean i'm sure there's a bunch i'm sure but, they're out there but it was a joy to watch her do it yeah it really was and it's something like i don't think i've ever seen that kind of playful side from her uh mm-hmm. and it's also weird that i've um one of the things i've struggled with meryl street's performances is she there's obviously a lot of steamy performances she's done and sexual performances but i never bought her as super sexy, but like her chemistry with this dude missing his front teeth, uh, like cast out of like some kind of Southern Gothic horror film, I thought was really sexy. Okay. That's not how I would describe it, but sure. I, I feel you. Oh, there's something. Well, no, clearly you don't, but <laughs> I, I'll, I'll believe you. You'll, you'll you go say along, you thought it was you'll, sexy. You'll, you'll, go, you'll go along with that. Uh, yeah. I once fell deeply, you know, profoundly in love with tropical fish. Had 60 goddamn fish tanks in my house. I skin dived to find just the right ones. Anisotromus virginicus, Holacanthus ciliaris, Chaetodon capistratus, you name it. In one day I say, fuck fish. I renounce fish. I vow never to set foot in that ocean again. That's how much fuck fish talk about uh cooper he yeah he's fantastic i, I mean, mean he's I, transformative in this role i first saw him in american beauty mm, yeah and i thought that was a hell of a role and it was kind of hit me in the right time when i was kind of becoming aware of like you know what it meant to be you know what it's like to be gay or what it's like to be mm-hmm. closeted and like seeing this guy this gruff exterior i mean i the, yeah I don't know. Like, if I go back and watch it, I might have a whole bunch of criticisms. But like, I thought he played the the 
internal, like the basic just sadness and despair of a character like that. This kind of performance, like talk about it being brave. I, I think it is a little bit to like to deliberately make yourself look repulsive. Yeah. Uh, to get a particular type of magnetism and essential interest. And it's also ties so well into Charlie Kaufman. Like this guy, objectively uglier. Uh, and more fucked up than Charlie Kaufman, mm. but this this Meryl Streep, this beautiful, sexy, smart Meryl Streep character is falling for him because he's so passionate and engaged and present in what he's doing. Yeah, and I think it, it works so well to pair them together in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether there's like a love interest or even hinted at in the, the Orchid Thief book, I don't know. But... Uh, Cooper is interesting, or or the character that he's playing, LaRoche, uh-huh. is interesting because... I very much feel like he's hiding behind these orchids. He's hiding behind the fish and the 19th century mirrors. Hmm. There's there's the moment in his life where everything went sideways, where he wishes he could go back, like hmm. Meryl Streep says at the end of this movie, because I believe they're very kindred spirits, um, to to when, you know, his life wasn't so fucked up. It's interesting because there's, there's a sadness in his detached moving on mm-hmm. that is sort of praised and also, uh, you know, decried in this movie mm-hmm. Be- because he's able to immediately detach him. And that's, that's that process of adaptation that comes so easily to him. Right. Whereas it doesn't come easily to Meryl Streep's character to Orlean. Um, and yet I feel like he's using that to hide his true, uh, feelings about, you know, what he, what he did to his mother. He didn't do it, but he feels like he did. Well, I also think they're trying to say something interesting about the fraud complex and how it can manifest other ways, because I think this guy, he says like, I'm the most brilliant man I know at some point and just, just unabashed. And like, that's his fiction. Yeah. So he sees himself as an exceptional person and he throws himself in these kind of trivial pursuits. Like, he wants to be the most interesting, smart person in the world, so he throws out all these scientific names for orchids, which is something yeah, that's pretty trivial to 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 learn. And it's easy to be a cultivar of a rare orchid if you go and steal them from places. Uh, and so he's taking sh- his own shortcuts to success and a, his brilliant man myth that he's bought into, the same way Charlie Kaufman has. And I thought mm-hmm. that there there's a little little bit of uh, interest to that. And he also does like they make it on second on second watch. It's pretty clear that when he was fucking around in the swamp with Meryl Streep, he knew exactly where it was. He was never lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just wanted to prolong the time that he was spending with her, and ultimately hopefully find her to ghost orchid that 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 he had seen that she needed to have in her life so she could feel this fulfillment and contentment and ultimately it kind of fell flat and right i mean i it's a thinly veiled metaphor uh-huh. this ghost orchid for uh essentially a true love kind uh, of thing right? right i mean he's he's looking around in the swamp but he's already found his ghost orchid it's standing there in the swamp with him in a goofy hat yeah uh she's already found her orchid it's standing there with no front teeth like right that they they don't make a whole lot of effort to try and hide that fact yeah and the there it goes back to the satisfaction of the creative process having it's not so much the process itself um but it's the process of having been written i think there's different types of writers uh you know there's uh, some people that are like compelled to to create and write like the stephen king types and there's maybe the others that it's it's more difficult and they are more the Fabergé egg. It's like, I'm glad it's on the bookshelf, but fuck me, I don't ever want to write another. 
Um, but in both cases, sometimes like you think something's going to be so awesome and it's like this perfect thing in your head. And when you finally have it in front of you, it's, oh, it's, it's, it's just a flower. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's got a funny shape and it's got an interesting fragrance, but at the end it's like, uh, this flower is not going to have you weep with joy, uh, or kick up your heat. It's, it's, it's just a flower and she can't, uh, it's like she wanted to have this, um, the secondhand passion, she wants to borrow this guy's passion and share it with him. So when she sees this, she expects to feel a certain way and she doesn't, um, which I thought was, was pretty interesting to try and like stay sort of on the topic of Orlean. I wanted to talk about some of the chicken and egg moments in this movie because mm -hmm. she, um, I'll bring it back to Orlean. Charlie is very much looking for, uh, this epiphany, I think throughout the movie and he, he at the beginning of the movie decries how he thinks, you know, these epiphanies in movies are ridiculous and cheap and they don't happen in real life. And yet at the end of the movie, it's that epiphany that sort of changes his mind on how to view things. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like this in order to have the epiphany that epiphanies happen in real life, he has to have that epiphany. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's like this weird chicken and egg. How does he ever get that kind of thing? I guess the death of your brother will do that. Uh, there's also this line from Orlean where she says, I suppose I do have one unembarrassed passion. I want to know what it feels like to care about something passionately. Which I think is like a weird, doesn't make sense kind of line mm -hmm. uh, in that chicken and egg sort of way too. Mm -hmm. which I, I like those those little it, it almost feels like a recursive weird thing uh, thematically that they do in the movie. Yeah. There are a couple of moments that I want to talk about okay. uh, specifically that I like. Um, the the probably number one is the scene of him writing the intro to this movie, which is the sprawling uh, stop motion, fast motion, whatever uh, mm -hmm. thing of going from life right before... Or, or the planet right before life to Charlie Kaufman yeah. uh, as he sits currently. That's it. That's what I need to do. Tie all of history together. Start right before life begins on the planet. All is lifeless. And then like, life begins. And then we see, you know, like um, uh, dinosaurs. The primates, monkeys, the simple monkeys, the, the old-fashioned monkeys giving away to the new monkeys, whatever, and the apes. Whatever, and, and man. Then we see the whole history of human civilization. Hunting and gathering, farming, war, love, religion, heartache, disease, loneliness, technology. We bring it all the way to this moment in history and end with Susan Lee in her office at the New Yorker writing about flowers and bang, the movie begins. This is great. This is the breakthrough I've been hoping for. It's never been done before. It's the entire everything. He is a genius. It's perfect. It's, it's a truly beautiful thing to see someone with... I think a profound, interesting way to start a movie mm -hmm. and tie what tie the, the ultimate themes of adaptation and life together, mm -hmm. and then to real to to be re-listening to that on his tape recorder and go, oh god, this is shit. Mm -hmm. To to have those moments of inspiration, and then in your worst moments, second guess your best moments. He wrote down exactly how the movie begins, which worked beautifully. It did. <laughs> 
And then yeah. he's like, well, this is just shit. This is, yeah, this is, this is terrible. This is not a way to start a movie yet. They, that's, he, he made it, he, he found a way to, to, to make that work. And then the, the funniest thing about this scene is he's figured out how to tie all life together through this story of adaptation and evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then his brother walks in and starts talking about his script. We have to realize that we, we all write in a genre. We must find our originality within that genre. See, it turns out there hasn't been a new genre since Fellini invented the mockumentary. My genre's thriller. What's yours? You and I share the same DNA. Is there anything more lovely than that? The crashing realization, the smack in the face mm-hmm. that they share the same DNA yeah. he's, is just crushing to him. <laughs> right. And that's like because he's like he meant this to like, well, how does this all connect? Uh-huh. The thing that he thought was going to bring everything together is now isolating. And, and, and but it's it's nothing changed except for his his mindset and his mood. Yeah, absolutely. Now, he, he realized in that moment, like we are so we are as close to the same as we could possibly be and yet i still don't relate to you in any way mm-hmm. you know how much more lonely could i possibly be on this planet there's another scene that i thought was kind of interesting where uh charlie starts to fall in love with the dust jacket cover mm-hmm. of uh or miss orleans and it's a subtle thing they play but meryl streep's picture actually does change oh does it yeah like her uh. smile's slightly more inviting or her eyebrows arch because she's she's oh I, I like looking at you too and then like you know she's uh more soft and supportive it's very very fucking subtle mm-hmm. but it does happen and i think there is as almost subliminal uh from 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 Charlie's viewpoint, it's almost like the dust jacket's leading him on. And I do like the moment at the end where they're in the swamp, and mm-hmm. this is the epiphany moment. I can move whoever I want. She thought you were pathetic. <laughs> that was her business, not mine. You are what you love. Not what loves you. That's what I decided a long time ago. What's up? Thank you. And getting over that fear of like, what people are going to think, which is uh, Orlean's big problem in this movie, uh, is such a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what actually turns the key and unlocks Charlie at the end to actually go free him to be kind of the person he wants to be as a person as opposed to the person that he's so scared into being. Mm. I want to talk one about one scene towards the end of the movie that I think showcases uh, Kaufman's skill and Cage's skill. Okay. And that is where we just had this gonzo scene of Meryl Streep and and uh, this Cooper guy trying to kill Donald and and Charlie Kaufman, and they get away. There's gunshots fired, and they're speeding away in this rental car. I can't believe I got shot. Isn't that fucked up? Shut up. Stop laughing. Ah! 
And on second watch, I realized during that whole scene underneath in the audio is the seatbelt warring. You know, when you don't put your seatbelt on, it's bing, <laughs> bing. The whole time they're having right. this moment of elation and connection, there is this danger lurking. And is then, that one of those motifs, the, the, the thematic motifs, like a broken mirror? It's something you almost notice subliminally. I could see... Uh, like Charlie dismissively saying, oh, yeah, right before he goes out the window, you should have the seatbelt alarm going off so it builds the tension. And, and Donald's like, yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah. It is a fucking great idea. Uh-huh. Uh, and then when the brothers are dying, or when the one brother, when Donald's dying, I don't feel like that moment should work because Charlie and Donald have not had this great close relationship. It's almost like Donald's always been the the like the pest or the parasite, and Charlie's wishing he could be rid of him. He doesn't like the fact he, sh- he shares DNA, and they work in that pop song. So like Donald's dying, and Charlie realizes that he misses his brother. He loves his brother. He needs his brother. So he starts singing this uh, "You and Me" to get him back, and it does bring Donald back. There's like this kind of look yeah. of like idiot rapture on his face. Uh, but then that too fades away and I got like really emotional, choked up about it. <laughs> yeah. And that's Nick Cage. But you're right. Nick Cage's performance there, I think is the thing that sells it. And he's acting with himself. Yeah. It's like, it, it's kind of like marketing. Like every time you look at marketing, it always feels gross and like, Oh, I'm above that or that never work on me. But statistically, uh, it does. It works on us all. Yeah. And in a way, and, and maybe that's part of it that a writer is aware of the strings that he's pulling and the actor mm-hmm. is aware of the, the emotion, the manipulation and there it's, it's easy to have contempt for the audience. Yeah. Like, well, everyone should be smarter than this, but we're not, we're not, we're just, right. we're, we're just monkeys. And the other smart thing is I kind of feel like Nick Cage performing this with Nick Cage this this emotional moment is kind of a form of masturbation, which ties into cough, like you know Coffin's incessant uh-huh. need for masturbation. Like I thought that that was another interesting thematic point mm-hmm. um, that seems silly and uh, kind of gross out of context early in the more and like. But but now you see when Nick Cage is playing with himself at the end of the movie, it's it's uh, it elevates the whole thing. And man, again, how do you how do you write something like that? How do you perform something like that? How do you perform the dot like the like a, a brother's joy at having finally achieved the genuine connection with his brothers kind of hated him his whole life as he's dying to the saw to sound of uh, happy together. I don't know. Nick Cage does it. And it's pretty amazing. Actually, Cage, Cage and Coffin season of the cage. <laughs>